0: When I was young, my parents tried to convince me that algebra came from an Arabic word. I think they thought that I would see it as part of my heritage and I would be more likely to do it. It half worked. Um, I really enjoyed math until right around high school. and But it was only years later that I could appreciate the history of math in the Muslim world when I encountered it in an academic setting, in histories of math. So if I were trying to do the same thing today with astronomy, with the next generation, I think I would have a bit of help. I would turn to the work of today's guest, who works on 19th century astronomy in Egypt. My name is Enne Mansour, or Nadzira, and welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies, part of the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Dan Stoltz, who is currently a visiting assistant professor of history at Northwestern University, where he is also affiliated with the Science and Human Culture Program. And in September, he will be an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He received his PhD from Princeton University in Near Eastern Studies. He's a historian of the modern Middle East, specializing in Egypt and the late Ottoman Empire, and is the author of many articles on science and religion in Egypt, and a monograph, the subject of today's podcast interview, The Lighthouse and the Observatory, Islam Science and Empire in Late Ottoman Egypt, out 2018 from Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. So this book is striking to me as a history of science in the Middle Eastern context, because it is both a history of science in the Middle Eastern context, but is also also a study of Islam, and I, I wonder at times whether or not, um, until very recently, maybe the last two decades, we've neglected the history of science in Middle Eastern studies. Sort of, what's your assessment of the field of the history of science today in Middle East studies?
1: Right, I'm really encouraged by the state of history of science in Middle East studies today, uh, and I would say more broadly, science and technology studies, uh, just because I think uh, you know we definitely want to include really interesting work. Uh, In anthropology right now as well Uh, and you know you're absolutely right that you know the way things developed historically uh there was a very specialized field that focused on the history of science uh in pre-modern islamic contexts right the translation movement right uh the development of uh astronomy uh, as well as medicine mathematics right in that kind of classical context uh in a way that you know wasn't really connected with uh certainly modern middle east history or even always with with other areas in the history of science uh and there wasn't a lot of attention to the history of science in the modern middle east except maybe as a kind of you know history of diffusion from from the west um and I think you know. In the last couple of, of decades, as you say, that's really changed. And one of the things that's really encouraging to me is is that there it's not just a matter of kind of the quantity of work in science and technology studies, uh, you know, in the Middle East today, uh, but also the extent to which that work is is really part of the conversation more broadly. So that if uh, you know you're writing on you know whatever it is, whether it's Arab nationalism or the Islamic revival, or whether you're doing social history or cultural history, I think. People are increasingly aware that science, technology, medicine are are part of that picture, and uh, you know, in, in in ways that are informed uh, methodologically as well, right? By uh, the way that people in science studies approach science, right, as something which is you know socially situated and 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 produced um, and not just kind of present and taken for granted the way that it is. Uh, so I'm thrilled to you know to be. Uh, kind of writing in that, in that field today with uh, not just, you know, uh, an increasing number of colleagues, but to be, you know, part of broader conversations.
0: I think one of the accomplishments of the book truly is that you bring us, you really just elucidate why we should care about the history of science and more specifically the history of astronomy, because this book is a study of astronomy. Um, so what, what is your intellectual biography? How did you come to study astronomy specifically in the Islamic or the Muslim context? Well, I
1: chose astronomy as uh, the subject of the book uh, largely because I was interested in incorporating uh, the ulama into uh, our understanding of science in the modern Middle East, particularly in the late Ottoman uh, period. Uh, I'd always been interested in science, in that context, uh, understanding you know, the politics and the translation of science in the late Ottoman, especially late Ottoman Arab society was really the interest that brought me into graduate school to begin with. Uh, and one of the things I noticed was that that history uh, was really centered on kind of new social classes, right? And even new uh, media uh, like print periodicals, right? In that in that period uh, and new institutions as well, uh, schools, right? Um, and it struck me, right, especially given the amount of uh, attention in Islamic studies recently to the role of ulama in modernity, right, that, that this was a social group which was really missing from our understanding of what was happening with science uh, in that period. Uh, and I chose astronomy, right, as as a science which I thought, you know, had the potential to, uh, uh, to integrate ulama into that story. Uh, because of the of the very rich history of science uh, in uh, Islamic context, right? Because of those intersections with Ramadan, with the timing of prayer, uh, because of the history of astrology, right? Uh, all of these things, right? It, it it just struck me as as a having a very rich potential to tell a more socially complex story, maybe uh, about science in the late Ottoman period. What I discovered uh, is that it also had these other intersections that I didn't anticipate, in particular with the history uh, of the late Ottoman Egyptian state, right, and, and the extent to which uh, uh, the Khedivial government in the nineteenth century and then later the British uh, administration uh, in Egypt were invested in building astronomical institutions as well. That that was that was a surprise to me. That was not something. Uh, that I had anticipated. Um, it's it's not surprising in the in the bigger scheme of things, right? Uh, in, that's some, that's something that uh, uh, all kinds of states in the 19th century are doing, using astronomy uh, to draw maps, to survey, to draw borders. Uh, but it was it was surprising to me at the time. So it wound up being a subject through which I could kind of connect the ulama and forms of Islamic authority with new forms of, of political power uh, as well.
0: Um, so is that why you specifically chose Ottoman Egypt as a setting? Because it sort of um, had all these different elements that could tie into astronomy? Or was there a specific reason why you focused on e- Egypt and, and Cairo in particular and its suburbs and not, for example, Aleppo or Istanbul?
1: Sure. I think one, one could have done the project in any number of ways. Um, and, and even within the framework of late Ottoman Egypt, there are different geographies that are relevant in the book. Uh, so when it comes to this kind of state-building astronomy, let's call it call it, you know, the building of a state observatory, the production of uh maps, uh navigational technology, uh time distribution. Uh that's a part of the book which is fairly centered on Egypt, uh, because the Khedivial uh, uh, government and later the British were really using uh, astronomy to define Egypt, right, as as such, in that period, uh, in ways that kind of were very deliberately kind of separating it to some extent from you know from uh, Arab or Ottoman or Islamic uh, communities. Uh, at the same time, when it comes to the production of ulama, let's say, right, those are people who are very engaged in a more Islamic geography, right? I mean, they're coming to Cairo very often from other Ottoman lands or even from further uh, uh, afield. Um, and the kind of circulation of texts and even timekeeping practices, right, kind of connects Egypt with, with other parts of the Ottoman and Islamic uh, geography. Uh so there are different, you know, even just to say, kind of late Ottoman Egypt, right, is to kind of reduce some of the geographical complexity, right, that that shows up in the book. I think, um, in terms of choosing Egypt, I mean, one thing that was really interesting to me was the uh, complexity of imperialism in that in that moment, right. So, right, you have this household, right, of Mahmud Ali Pasha, right, and his descendants, the Khedives, who are you know, essentially building, you know, an, an empire within the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century. Uh, so you have both kind of Ottoman and uh, Ottoman Egyptian uh, uh, political frameworks that are relevant. Uh, then you have the British right later in the 19th century, right? Uh, so you have this kind of nested or, or multiple imperialisms right on the ground, all of which are using science uh, to advance Uh, their aims. Uh, So that struck me as a story within the history of science and empire that was a bit different uh, from the view one typically gets, say, where empire is really centered on Europe, uh, right, and kind of colonizing, right, other parts of the world in the 19th century, right? This is a story in which uh, there is that kind of Eurocentric empire, but there's also uh, a Cairo-centered empire, right, and an Istanbul-centered empire. Right. Uh, so that to me was was one of the appeals of writing this as an Ottoman Egyptian history was to to do to highlight something a bit unusual, a bit different in, in in terms of science and empire in kind of where it's centered and being centered in multiple places in the 19th century.
0: I really admire that about the book is that you sort of there are many different categories that we have to contend with as people who work on the 19th century and you very elegantly allied many of them by picking your cat your own sort of categories and setting them um, such as, as as you mentioned picking the idea like using Ottoman Egypt to describe your world because um, or the setting because Ottoman can communicate so many different things about where Egypt is at that point of time it's, it's just such an elegant solution um, you mentioned earlier, you alluded to some of the principal characters in your book, um, which are the ulama, um, Islamic scholars, so to speak. And religious authority sort of just charges through the book. Um, what a mm-hmm. religious authority means, how it's enacted, um, what these institutions um, connote, and how they change, like al-Azhar, the, um, the famed, um, I hesitate to say Islamic institution because in our current day and age, it's so many different things. Um yeah. but it's the famed sort of universe, like like it's it's the center of Islamic learning that has sort of become very iconic. Um mm-hmm. but today for example includes a dentistry school, a very good dentistry school and a very good faculty of languages right. and and so many different things. Um engineering. So, you know, yep, and I mean yeah, and and but at the same time to be an Azharite has this connotation of Islamic learning and they actually all students do have to take a year of Islamic sciences. Mm-hmm. Um so you have all these institutions, all these characters, and um, how is religious authority negotiated between them? Is religious authority s- simply a top-down phenomenon? How how does it function in, in the case of astronomy in particular?
1: Well, one of the things that I tried to capture in the book is the way in which authority is negotiated, as you say, uh, relationally, right? So that it's not top-down, uh, or let's say it's not only top-down, Uh because there absolutely are instances in which uh, the uh, state actors uh, will you know, uh, institute new practices, whether it's, uh, you know, so an iconic example of this, right, is um, implementing uh, a standard meantime system, right, at the very beginning of the 20th century, uh, centered on, on Greenwich, right? Um, and that, you know, has reverberations, some of them quite unintended, for how people are timing uh, uh, prayer and scheduling uh, prayer in, in Cairo, especially. Uh, at the same time, though, one of the things I wanted to uh, draw attention to in the book is the extent to which people outside the state and even and outside of uh, you know central institutions like the Azhar uh, were also really interested in kind of mobilizing uh, new sciences and taking advantage of kind of enlisting some of these new institutions in their own projects to advance their own visions. Uh, in some cases, right, these are Uh, Visions that have to do with uh, Islamic unity, uh, the unity of the ummah in the early 20th century, right? So I write about uh, people like Muhammad Rashid Rida and people in his circle writing in the journal Al-Manar who were really interested in uh, using astronomy and new sciences more generally to advance uh, a view about what modern Islamic education should be, about correct ways to read the Quran, about you know kind of unity in terms of prayer practice uh, right so science becomes a way in which all kinds of actors uh, uh, in a sense a kind of resource right for all kinds of actors to uh to deploy uh for their for their own purposes and i think authority often was constituted in that sort of uh push and pull right between kind of central institutions and uh, broader movements uh in the press uh especially at that time
0: so the book in particular is titled the lighthouse and the observatory and it's a bit on the nose and i was wondering about those institutions of astronomy and how they're expressed during the 19th century are they necessarily new institutions observatories and and the like Mm mm-hmm
1: well, you know, just to be to be clear, right? So the observatory that uh, that the title refers to is, you know, is definitely a new institution in late Ottoman Egypt. It's actually several institutions, right? There's this sort of iterative process where, you know, almost every kind of uh, government uh, kind of builds its own observatory. Uh, uh, Mohammed Ali Pasha builds an observatory. Uh, Ismail Pasha, right, builds an observatory in the 1860s. The British build a new observatory in the, in, in uh, around 1903. Um, the lighthouse refers to El right, refers to that, that journal. Um, uh, which of course itself is a, is a, a, a reference to, uh, uh, to hadith, right. In which the, the prophet Muhammad had said that, you know, Islam, uh, has a, or, or contains a, 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 beacon or a, or a lighthouse, right. Like a, a beacon on the, on a path or along the road. And, you know, in a sense, what I was trying to do with that title was to pose the question, you know, what, what is the relationship between these two things, right between the establishment of these kinds of central scientific institutions in the late Ottoman period, and a conception of Islam uh, that is promulgated right in journals like El right, which 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 cast themselves, right, which which casts itself, right? The journal, right, is is the beacon, right? Um, <laughs> and which um which sees itself as a a kind of center uh, around which a global ummah, right, uh, can organize itself, right, around a kind of single correct standard, right? I mean, that is, you know, an increasingly... prominent and, and active uh, kind of project in the, especially in the early, by the time we get to the early 20th century of kind of defining Islam right around as, as something which has this kind of single and, and not only correct standard, but, but a standard that is clear, right. For anyone who can kind of look at it. Uh, and so, you know, in that title, I was trying to, in, in a sense, ask, ask the question, you know, what is the relationship between that conception of Islam, right. And, and the growth of these, of these central scientific institutions. Um, because I think both are new right to an extent um I mean both obviously also have histories um uh, but the prominence that they attain you know by the early twentieth century i think is is new and and is connected right um right that this uh project to to remake right islam. As something which is kind of uniform across time and space, as I say in the book, uh, I think is is connected to uh, the growth of these scientific institutions and more broadly this conception of, of knowledge, right, and and practice, right, scientific practice as things that transcend time and space.
0: I think one of the conversations the field has been having, especially the field of nineteenth um, century Middle Eastern history, has been having is how to talk about rupture and change and. You illustrated it right there. Of, there are some forms of thought or of practice that are completely new. And then there are some forms that, and, and those forms can still be rooted in the past. So as you mentioned, Al-Manad is, I mean, Al-Manad and, and the magazines and journals that both preceded it and were contemporary to it were very, you know, they drew on older forms of writing in the Islamic tradition, other forms of writing in the Arabic tradition, um, but they definitely also I mean, to have a journal that was distributed amongst an increasingly literate class was new. Um right. and that's just one such example, I think. Um and you again deal with it very elegantly by sort of not discussing outright whether or not there's rupture or continuity at all. You just sort of take it as a fact that they're both. Um so Yeah, I wonder
1: whether I should have been more explicit about that as you say that. I I mean, I think, uh, right, I mean, one of the things that was so uh, astonishing to me or just so noteworthy was how old some of these practices are, which then become, but which become normative, right, in the 20th century, right? So it's something like, um, uh, you know, the use of mathematical astronomy to uh, define uh, the schedule of prayers, right? I mean, this is phenomenally old, right? in, in uh, certainly in Cairo, right? I mean, it has a thousand years, of history, right? Um, in that discipline of mikat, right, of of, of timekeeping, uh, and even institutionally, right? You know, things like mosque timekeepers, right? I mean, there's a very thriving, uh, it's a very thriving institution in the Mamluk period, right, in Cairo. Um, but the way in which this is then used, especially when it's connected with a periodical press, when it's connected with uh, technologies like telegraphy when it's connected with, uh, you know, a, a modern state institution right in the 20th century, right. That practice takes on a whole new life that, that looks almost categorically different, right. Even though it is tied to this very old form of knowledge, right. So, so it's, it's in a sense rupture and continuity, I would say, I mean, we tend to contrast them, right. Or, or pose them as binaries, right. Uh, but, in an interesting way the the rupture right is is uh, represents a continuity right i mean it it flows from right this this not kind of knowledge which is a thousand years old
0: and then when you sort of think about how ideas are added together, how they're subtracted, not subtracted, but how where ideas come from, um, to some extent, the justification for Using new technologies to produce, for example, times for prayer is rooted in other religious rulings. I mean, it's a very sort of, there's just different Islamic sciences that plug in and out of this. But at the same time, I agree with you. I think everything is sort of a, a birth and a death, a rupture and a continuity at the same time. And it's just these mm-hmm. different permutations and combinations that happen that make it so interesting to watch. And I think that nuance, I'm encouraged by the fact that I think increasingly a lot of the books I've been reading recently approach. Um, the history of ideas in particular this way. So I know, I'm, I'm excited about this wave of history writing, but to sort of get back at things that don't quite exactly change as quickly or perhaps something that's rooted in an older form, you spend mm-hmm. a lot of time with manuscripts um, for mm-hmm. this book. Yeah. And in particular, one genre of writing, um, the Zizh. So mm-hmm. what does it consist of? If I was to pick up a manuscript, what would it? how would it feel like? How would it look like?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. um, So the Zij is a handbook, uh, right? I mean, we might think of it almost as a kind of manual, uh, a set of instructions, uh, right? So it's very different, say, from a, you know, a a treatise, uh, right? Or, you know, any genre of writing which, uh, you know, you might pick up and just kind of read, right? Uh, The Zij is, I I like to say, the Zij is a text that was meant to be used as much as it was read, Right. Um, and a lot of the, uh, manuscripts that I looked at for this project were Zij commentaries. So that's a little bit different because, um, there you do get more of the, the, kind of typical structure of a, of a sharh, right. Um, uh, and those are typically kind of pedagogical texts, right, which are meant to explain the use of these, uh, uh, handbooks to, um, to, you know, people who are becoming learned in the, in the science, um, they tend to be fairly comprehensive as pedagogical texts in the sense that they assume relatively little. Uh, and so you would, you you know, as I write in the book, you know, everything from, you know, uh, you know how to add, you know, (laughs) to how to predict the position of a planet, you know, would be, uh, you know, could be included in that kind of commentary. Um, they, Tend to follow a certain structure in terms of the kinds of questions that they deal with. Uh, so a lot of it uh, has to do with the calendar uh, or calendars, actually. Um, so typically, there will be discussions of the Hijri calendar uh, and how to uh, determine uh, the first of the of the months of the of the Hijri calendar. Uh, typically, also the Coptic calendar for, especially for zijes um, produced in uh, in the Middle East and certainly in Egypt. Um, uh, Persian calendar typically shows up as well. Uh, the Jewish or Hebrew calendar, um, uh, often also the uh, call the the Rumi calendar, right? Um, and uh, there will also be a lot of discussion of how to kind of convert dates between those uh, systems. Uh, so a lot of, uh, typically the first several sections would be uh, kind of occupied with uh, calendrical knowledge, uh, including knowledge of the of the holidays, right? Um, and it's always interesting to see how much knowledge there was, you know, for let's say a Muslim scholar, right? In 19th century Egypt, you know, to be able to write about uh you know the different festivals on 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 different uh church uh calendars as well as the, the jewish calendar so you'd also find always uh sections on timekeeping right how to determine the hours of the day uh the hours of prayer uh and then also sections on uh determining uh the position of uh the planets um and it's pretty clear, often explicit that that, uh, practice was connected with, uh, Akham and Injun, right? The, uh, astrology, the judgments of the stars, right? Uh, the actual interpretation, right? Astrological interpretation of planetary positions, right? Is typically not included or not necessarily included in, in these, uh, handbooks, right? That would be a separate genre of writing, right? But it's kind of expected, right? That, that this, uh, of astronomical practice of predicting the position of the planets or determining where they were in the past, right. Is in a sense kind of linked with their astrological, uh, interpretation. Uh, so, right. So it's a very, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a text that, uh, that was used, right. Um, and, and certainly, uh, one shouldn't assume that all parts of it were used equally by all users, right. Uh, there were, uh, you know contexts in which uh you know time that sections on timekeeping might have been really important or the sections on uh the coptic calendar might have been really important or the sections on uh the uh, hijri calendar right so it, it's um like that's why i you know encourage you to think of it as a manual right just like you wouldn't pick up a manual and read it you know from front from cover to cover, right, you're going to pick it up to, to solve the problem that you're having, right, with whatever you're trying to use, right? And, and the Zij, uh, similarly.
0: So, another thing that I really admire about the book is uh, your ability to connect texts together. And I think often those of us who come up in Islamic studies, and we were talking a little bit before the interview about how we'd taken a similar puzzle Islamic studies class when we were in grad when we were well, when you were in grad school and I took it a couple of years ago in grad school. Um, and, and you follow texts quite well, and you're able to put them in conversation with each other, which is sort of another layer on top of that ability to sort of fit all these different pieces of the puzzle together. Um, and one thing you do in particular is, is you're able to trace different translations of texts from mm-hmm. European languages into into Arabic and the interaction with them. So sort of what is the role of translation? How do these texts move in this world? Sort of what is both the physical and the ideational movement of going on here? Mm-hmm.
1: It's sometimes in surprising ways. Uh, and one of the things that was really interesting to me in following or, or tracing the movement of astronomical texts was the, you know, all the, the different sorts of directions or, or uh, in, in which texts move, right? I think... Uh, you know we were talking about the nafta earlier, and I think you know there's this uh conventional or, or just sort of assumed geography right in in which things were translated you know basically from french or or english uh into arabic or or turkish right uh, and uh the the pathways right that come out in the book are are you know i mean obviously there was translation from French into Arabic and from English into Arabic. Uh, But there was also translation from, you know, Russian into Turkish, uh, and from then from Turkish into Arabic, right? Uh, Or from Russian into Persian, right? And from Persian, right, into Turkish and Arabic. Um, So, you know, different kind of geographies of translation uh, come into play. And different centers of of translation as well right it was really interesting to me to see things being translated um in Demiat, right in in demyatta you know in the early 19th century and it turns out that this is actually not totally surprising right there is this kind of circle of of uh translators there which other people have have worked on as well in terms of uh translation of, of literature um uh, into Arabic in that period. Um, well, you know, the same, they're also doing uh, astronomy. Um, so, you know, people who had connections uh, across the Mediterranean or were in a position, either because of their religious communities or their merchant communities, to have some capacity in different languages, right? Um, these are people who are moving texts, uh, you know. A, acquiring texts, you know, still from Italy as well, by the way, right? Not just um, France or or England um, and and translating them. And often what's interesting is you really see very clearly, especially in the manuscripts, kind of the, um, the multiple kinds of knowledge that go into translation, right? So it's not just like one person sitting there who is fluent in two languages and translates from one into another, right? It's very clear, right, that There is someone who uh, has some kind of technical proficiency and maybe some proficiency in multiple languages who is then doing a a kind of, in a sense, an an explication, a rough explication uh, of uh, the French text or the Italian text, whatever it is. And then there is someone else, right, whose job it is to um, kind of render that into an acceptable uh, literary Arabic, let's say, right? Um, and this actually becomes institutionalized, right? Other people have written about this, um, right? And by the middle of the 19th century in, in Egypt, right? think thinking about Pascal Crozet's work in particular, um, where there, you know, it's very clear that uh, you have this kind of tr- triangular expertise, right? That goes into, into, transla- into translation as a kind of cooperative and multi-stage project. I mean, I, I think... You know, in the book, I'm able to trace kind of some of the more um, informal origins of that. You know, in places like Damyat, Demiat, um, where you know it just took multiple kinds of knowledge—technical knowledge, literary knowledge, uh, vernacular knowledge—to to kind of get a text from one language into another.
0: I'm glad you you mentioned the nafka passing a moment ago, and it's another one yeah. of those frames that you kind of just. You kind of just, this is a big topic in Middle Eastern history. It's been a big topic since Albert Harani wrote um, Arabic thought in the liberal age, even though he never uses the term Nahda. Um, Yeah. There's, I mean, it's just, it's a question that, I mean, in my approach and my advisor encourages this to some extent is to sort of sidestep the whole nada and you I was encouraged to see sort of do the same I don't know if you I don't remember if you actually mentioned it by name but I what I appreciated about that and I want to ask you why you did that but I I have Mm -hmm. I have some clues as to why is that in many ways that allows you to size up another big methodological question, which is for many years there was this assumption of Ottoman or Muslim or Arab decline in sort of the early modern period. So the 16th, 17th centuries, and there's been a lot of pushback against that recently, but you just, again, you never really address that. You just sort of glide right past it. Why?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, no, it's a, it's a great observation and it's a fair observation. Uh, uh, there's a bit on, on decline in the introduction to the book, and and I think also, uh, you know, briefly the Um right? I mean, so maybe I'll start with decline uh, because I think it, you know the answer to the Nahda question is sort of implicit, and and the answer to the decline question, um, right? I mean, decline. The decline thesis casts a long shadow on Ottoman history, Islamic history, history of science. Um, and one of the ways in which it casts a shadow is that uh, you're absolutely right. That you know, for a long time, it was kind of expected that if you're doing a history uh, of science, especially in a let's say a kind of post-classical Islamic context, uh, what what one is trying to do is to write against the decline thesis, right? Um, and a lot of work, uh, including, you know, really um, uh, fabulous and, and quite recent work, uh, does that very effectively, right? And you know, just demonstrate the demonstrates the extent to which, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, Khaled al-Ruahib's work on, on logic, right? Or, you know, some of the really interesting work on early modern uh, medicine and, and uh, astronomy and astrology that's come out recently, right? Just the extent to which, you know, this conventional view of... Uh, you know whether it's post twelfth century or you know post uh, or you know Ottoman uh, science, or the extent to which this uh, conventional view of decline is just unsupported empirically, right? It just doesn't hold up. Um, the the problem with that for me, or the trap of that, let's say for me, is that um, for me, what's most interesting about uh, the history of science uh, is not Right. To be able to say, you know, look how intellectually productive or or dynamic uh, the culture was in, uh, you know, in a given period. Right. I would almost take that for granted. Right. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't take it for granted for a long time because of the strength of that of that decline uh, narrative. Right. Um, and so all of this kind of anti-decline work has, has been really liberating. Right. I think in allowing us to uh, to write a different kind of history, which instead of, you know, prioritizing the question of how productive, right, was the culture, right, I'm interested in, you know, the social relations and, and the social context and the political significance of the work, right. Um, and so I saw, you know, as you, as you rightly point out, I kind of sidestep the whole decline question because, because it is a bit of a trap for me, right? Uh, right. If, if I, right, we're just arguing, uh, you know, against decline, right? In a sense, I think we're, we're limited in the extent to which we're going to explore the, the political and social uh, and cultural context, right? Because we're just kind of focused on showing, you know, it wasn't decline you know, that there was dynamism, that there was kind of new production, right? Um, Which, you know, in another field, no one would ever bother. I mean... You know, if you're writing a history of you know science in 18th century France, right, and and you said you know your your argument is you know look how productive it was, look how people were doing all these new things. I mean, that is not you know what historians of science in that context are are trying to do, right? And it's not what I want to be doing either. Um, right, we're trying to kind of situate science socially and explain its its significance in those in those terms. Um, so you're absolutely right. I, I I kind of take for granted, in a sense, that um, know we've been kind of liberated from uh the decline thesis by you know the work that's that's happened in the last gosh you know 40 years really um and can kind of deal with science outside of that box um so that's my reason for kind of sidestepping um uh the decline thesis
0: what about the nada
1: (laughs) right so so implicit uh in that right is the extent to which um Right. I mean, the Natha, right is is itself a construct, right? I mean, it was a very kind of uh, uh, self conscious kind of uh, self representation, right, uh, on the part of people who, in a sense, are, are. It's part of the history of of the decline thesis itself, right? I mean, the the decline thesis is not just something that comes out of you know orientalists, right, who. Uh, you know, started to write the history of Islam and history uh, of the Middle East in a certain way in the 19th and 20th centuries in Europe, right, it also comes out of Arab and Ottoman intellectuals, right, in that period, right, who saw themselves, right, as part of the rebirth, right, of a, of a, a culture that had been, uh, that had fallen into decline, right, or had been suppressed, right, uh, so for Arab intellectuals, right, it was increasingly, you know, the, the Ottomans who were responsible for that decline. Right? And this becomes part of the kind of Arab nationalist historiography um, for Muslim reformists. Right. It's, you know, very often the ulama who are responsible for decline. Right. Who had kind of stifled you know, the true Islam with their, you know, kind of uh, intellectual obscurantism. Um uh, and so the Nata right uh, is is very closely, I think, connected to the to our, kind of the the historiographical paradigm, right, of, of decline, right, from which I'm trying to kind of step away from in the book, and which you know other historians of science in the Middle East have have stepped away from as well. Um, but it in in a sense, it's it's a you know the the. The very period, you know, that I'm concerned with in the book, and the actors that I'm concerned with in the book, they're kind of there at the at the origins, right, of that historiographic uh, paradigm, right, that the field kind of worked with, uh, you know, well into the 20th century. Uh, so, so sidestepping that, I think, is is and is, and bracketing it is 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 in it, or coming at it from from an angle where it's just not assumed, right, um, is is part of the same concern as as you know, kind of getting outside the box of of decline.
0: So to switch gears to something a little bit more material, um, we've already talked about sort of how science is distributed, um, how print affects uh, astronomy, just through all of my different questions, but I was actually hoping that we would focus on something really particular that the book um, takes, it's a slice of the book basically, because I think this is actually relevant to our more general audience, um, which is the the fact that the Islamic calendar is lunar because I Mm -hmm. I take that for granted as someone who grew up and is Muslim. um, And I took for granted that I, and currently am paying attention to um, the month and when the month ends because different religious holidays fall on the Mm -hmm. lunar calendar. Um, And this is dependent on the sighting of the moon, which varies from month to month. So can you explain more how attempts were made to regulate this?
1: Sure. So one of the, famous debates that uh, I wouldn't say begins, but certainly intensifies in the early 20th century is this debate over whether to uh, to standardize the lunar calendar, right? In other words, to move from a system in which uh, people actually have to see the new crescent uh, for the month to begin to a system in which the months are based on when we kind of astronomically know Right. That that new crescent is present in the sky, whether we see it or not. And of course, you know, the, the latter system, you know, if we compute it in advance, allows for people just to know, right, by looking at a calendar when Ramadan will begin, when it will end, uh, when Eid will be and and so forth. Um, uh, so this debate really intensifies uh, in the early 20th century. It's, it's an old debate, right, uh, in uh, 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 in fiqh. Uh, uh, but uh, but it really intensifies in the early twentieth century in a way that in a way that you know that scholars in Islamic studies have attributed for a long time to um, to uh, new technologies of communication, right? Uh, print uh, print journals and uh, the telegraph, right, which kind of make people in different parts of the world very acutely aware when, for example, they are beginning Ramadan on different dates. Right? And this becomes you kind know, of a source of some of some discomfort and and embarrassment, um, especially to the extent that it's used, you know, by by people outside the community to kind of poke fun uh, at uh, at Islamic practice in the in the early 20th century, um, right? So you see people kind of writing to to Rashid Rida in in Cairo, you know, from the Russian Empire, let's say, saying, you know, people, you know, are are uh, you know we're uncomfortable with with not uh, uh, um, knowing when Ramadan is going to begin or end. With the fact that we're kind of observing it at different times, it's it's a source of, of ridicule for the community. Um, so there are attempts to uh, to regulate this or to to adopt a standardized calendar, a, a kind of pre-calculated calendar, and. You know the the, the conventional uh, understanding or the 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 typical understanding is that they they fail right that that they're um, that you know to this day right, right uh, the norm in most communities is to look uh, for the the crescent right and to base the calendar on that uh, sighting. Now the extent to which to which that's true I think is actually. More, more up for debate, or, or it's more an open question than, than, than we realize. You know, so for one thing, right, the lunar sighting tends to be a very nationalized uh, kind of uh, ritual uh, in most places now, right? Um, certainly in, in most Muslim majority countries, right, there is kind of an official sighting, right, um, which in Egypt, for example, is performed by the national observatory right, um, in conjunction with with scholars um, from uh, from the religious, uh, uh, the national religious institutions, right. So to the extent to which both scientific and religious authority have been nationalized in many places in the 20th century, right, the lunar sighting is also kind of a nationalized uh, uh, standard. So it's still based on, on the actual observation of the Crescent, but it's not necessarily done like community by community. Um, the other thing I point out in the book is that this disagreement over whether to use calculation or not, right, whether to kind of s- to to um, to go by the actual crescent or uh, as seen in the sky, or whether to kind of adopt a, a, a pre-calculated calendar, um, kind of takes takes a new shape in the early twentieth century, in the sense that. Um, it's actually not the case that, you know, citing the crescent was the universal kind of pre modern practice and adopting a calendar or a, or a standardized calendar was something that kind of modernizers all of a sudden wanted to do in the late Ottoman period. Um, it's very clear actually in these debates that different kinds of calculation were being practiced in communities uh, in the 19th century and the notion that we should observe the, the crest, that one should observe the crescent, right, is something that, uh, to some extent, was really popularized by, by reformists in the early 20th century, who actually thought uh, that going by the visible presen- presence of the crescent in the sky would be a more uniform practice, in a sense, a more standardizing practice than going by calculation, right? Um, and this is something which I think seems a bit counterintuitive. Like why would, why would kind of having people look at the crescent in the sky kind of create a more uniform observance of the calendar than going by what astronomers say? Um, but actually in the early 20th century, like the calendars that were available to people, the almanacs that were produced straight at that time often disagreed about the calendar and about when the new moon would be visible. Whereas, uh, the idea was if you just kind of looked at the sky, right, that was something which people would not disagree about. Right. Um, And which especially, you know, when you kind of link that observation of the sky with telegraphy, right, you're going to get a more uniform observance than if you base it on the calendars, right. Which are, which are often in the early 20th century computed by different methods or, or are wrong. Right. Um, So I think in a, in a, in a weird way or in an unexpected way, Right, the, the decision in the early 20th century or the way the debate kind of unfolds where in most places people decide to stick with with observation of the Crescent was actually a, a choice that, that people made with the sense that this would actually be um, a more uniform observance, right? Something which would get people observing Ramadan actually more at the same time rather than at, at different times.
0: So... Um Sort of To begin closing the interviews, I wanted to ask you about archives and sources because one thing that's constantly on my radar is the fact that archives are increasingly, in the Middle Eastern context, increasingly difficult to get to. And of course, this isn't to say that the enormous human tragedies that are happening on both an institutional but also on plainly a material level in the Middle East in the form of the Syrian civil war or the revolution or What's been happening in Libya, Palestine, Lebanon, um, has meant that the peoples of those countries are suffering immensely, and not to belittle that at all, but access to these people's histories, and and, and in some of our cases in our own histories, is increasingly difficult. And for young practitioners Mm. in history, um, it's difficult to get into, for example, the Egyptian National Archives, put it frankly. Uh, The Syrian National Archives don't exist to people coming from Western academies anymore, even many universities or institutions in the middle east um so what would sort of your advice be to young practitioners of history writing even though you were working from a very different context
1: i appreciate the question um i i would say a few things um first of all you know our our histories are always going to be shaped by by the moment that we live in um and to the extent that we're kind of conscious about that and, our, and our, our present political moment, I think makes it hard not to be conscious of that fact. Um, I think it actually strengthens our, our writing, right? Um, as opposed to, to writing history in a way where, you know, yeah, we just assume that uh, we have all of, you know, these kinds of access and, and archival resources. And some of the assumptions, the methodological assumptions actually wind up being kind of submerged or buried. Um, and not examined, right, and the extent to which, you know, sure, you know, I, we had access, you know, 10 years ago to uh, the Egyptian National Archives in a way that's not possible right now, but the Egyptian National Archives itself, right, and the Darwath app, right, is a very particular uh, system and, and and makes certain kinds of history available, right, um, rather than others, and, 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 and so I think, you know, that situation of relatively open archival access meant that sometimes we weren't always as explicit about um, our methodology and the kinds of history we were doing whereas today it's unavoidable right i mean you 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 can't do uh you know middle east history right now and not be really direct about what what the limitations are and i think as you say kind of um that's tragic um and, and there's a larger human tragedy uh behind that which is more important um but if we're being explicit about you know, the kinds of history that are, are possible for us to, to, to write, I think that's actually not not a bad thing. Um, the other thing I would say is that, you know, looking at my book, for example, I mean, there are substantial uh, uh, parts of it that would still be perfectly possible to research. And, and one thing that I encourage people to do is not to underestimate, for example, the potential of archival, of, excuse me, of manuscript collections for writing uh, certainly, nineteenth-century history uh, in the Middle East. Um, less so, maybe twentieth-century, but certainly for the nineteenth century, right? Some of these manuscript libraries, which exist in the Middle East and which tend to have fewer uh, restrictions on them than archives, uh, right, are really rich sources for not just intellectual history but cultural history, social history uh, of the period. Um, I mean, my book just scratches the surface of what's available in the manuscript collections of the al-Kutub, right? Even just in terms of astronomy in the 19th century, let alone other subjects. Um, and uh, so I encourage people to think about manuscript collections, which obviously also exist outside the Middle East, for thinking about the 19th century and, and not just thinking about, you know, the, the periods where manuscripts are more typical. Um, so that, you know, methodologically, that's another suggestion.
0: No, I'm really excited about what is going to come out of this period in particular because it is forcing, I think, both my generation and any generation that's 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 writing history right now, really, to think more creatively about what is an archive and what is a source and where can you get those things. And simply because the official version of that history, such as the National Archives in Egypt or um, the, State Archives, the State Zionist Archives in Israel, are not as readily available doesn't mean that um, – you can't find an archive somewhere else. You just have to be a little bit more creative, a little bit more assertive, um, and a little bit more wily, I think, at the same time, um, in choosing how you frame your project um, to individuals when you encounter them, and willing to just follow, just to go down a rabbit hole at any point in time. Um,
1: so I think simple- so. Yeah. yeah. No, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. No,
0: no, no. I, no
1: I, I I think I mean a lot of people, you know, who are working on projects right now in the region I talk to are working with family archives, right, private archives. And that, you know, sometimes is just a stroke of luck, right, through through connections. Um, but it also often means being uh, in closer contact with colleagues in the region, right, at I meaning at universities in the region, which is not a bad thing. Um, and is probably something we should do more anyway. Uh there are resources available for working with those uh, kinds of archives, right? For digitizing them, right? I'm thinking of the Endangered Archives Initiative in particular, um, right? So there is funding available for that kind of work. So I think, right, in, in a sense that ultimately we're going to be shifted away from just kind of parking ourselves in this in the state archives. Um, more interesting, or certainly just new and, and different kinds of history are going to emerge in the. In the long term, I mean, people are not—it's—it's it's not as though people have stopped doing archival research in the Middle East. Um, it's just going to look different.
0: Yeah, and I by no means do I wish to sort of dismiss your book or the country that your book focuses on, Egypt. But there is quite a lot of Egypt is is quite to some extent overrepresented in the history of the Middle East. I mean, I yeah. I, I have a chapter on Egypt, but I still think that Egypt is quite overrepresented. Um, but so hopefully that means that people will start looking for example at at modern Jordan, um, which the archives for that are extremely rich and are almost untapped. Um, North Africa needs to be thought of differently and in new and interesting ways. Um, there's new opportunities for writing about the Arab Gulf that that field of studies is also to some extent untapped. You're still writing those national histories in fact. Um, And then also just thinking of Egypt differently. Um, So hopefully this will lead to new and interesting studies. And on that same note, can you sort of give us a teaser of what you're working on right now? What projects you have in the pipeline?
1: Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, So I've started a new project recently on uh, late Ottoman uh, public debt, the uh, bankruptcy and, and then debt administration Right, that takes place uh, both in Istanbul and uh, in Cairo in the last two decades, uh, or two and a half decades of the, of the 19th century. Uh, and approaching that topic uh, less from the vantage point of economic history, right, where there's, you know, a longstanding literature on the, on the debt, and more from the vantage point of a kind of history of expertise, right, that comes out of my, you know, training in, in history of science. Uh, so I'll be working on that. Um hopefully uh not gonna have a chance uh really to get going on the archival uh aspects of that this year, but hopefully uh uh next uh summer at the latest uh, I'll be doing more work on that um and uh I'm excited to be working on a history that will be a bit geographically different from the first project it'll be uh, it'll have kind of parts of it that are centered in Egypt, but I think on the whole, it'll be more a kind of a broader Ottoman story, right, that includes uh, Istanbul, as well as um, other uh, provinces where the dead administration was really present. So uh, I'm looking forward to that.
0: That's yeah. exciting. I mean, not to speak of other um, underrepresented fields of history within Middle Eastern histories or subfields so within Middle East history, um, I think economic history is starting to, there's an upswing Um, and I'm really excited to see that happen as well because I think, especially, I think oftentimes historians can forget how much their work intersects with other people's Um, and Mm -hmm. think a little bit more in terms of context sometimes, especially in intellectual history. So that's really exciting. And congratulations on the new book. It's, It's really, I think it's going to be a fixture for a while.
1: Thank you so much. It's really nice to speak with you.